0: If we had a human nature, it would not be, you know, oh, violence. The way we portray human nature is selfishness and violence. That's not true. If you really study the history of humankind, we are hyper, hyper social. And 90% of us will sacrifice intense happiness for the group. It's only a few outliers that are violent, selfish, egotistical, narcissistic. Most of us, and look at your family, look at your aunts, your uncles, your mom. How many of them were selfish? How many of them were self sacrificing? How many of them made decisions for the group over themselves? And I would bet most of us have more self sacrificing people in our lives than selfish.
1: Hi, welcome to the Melrose Show. Melrose here. If you've listened to this intro before, you can click the forward button now eight times to get to the start of this episode. So, before this version of myself, I was Am artist, fashion designer, professional model, TV personality, small business owner, real estate agent, placement agent, and an institutional financial advisor, all before stepping into my current role, which I love in investor relations and podcasting professional. Woo, it was a wild ride to get here. And after all those jobs, living in six countries, 16 different cities, and trying on many versions of myself, I have found that The best place to live is comfortably in my purpose and in a space and a community that allows me and wants to see me grow. And I want the same for you. Through my highly versatile career path and working with others on their dreams along the way, I decided to start this podcast to try to help people understand that life is not a race, it's a marathon, career is not a ladder, it's a jungle gym, and that I really believe truly the best way in life is following curiosity my curiosity has me focused on career plants shadow light and integration work art permaculture and community building these are my purposes in life and for me they all go together They're topics that we will explore together throughout time on this podcast. And I come here to connect you to unique ideas from incredible people. The aim is to help us all grow more into our purpose-driven lives. This podcast supports a community of amazing humans that meet on full moons to howl and heal. We are a global community. Many are interviewed on this podcast and I invite you to join us offline after the show. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy this exploration journey with people from around the world who have self-actualized in their lives in some way. Hopefully, they will inspire you in your own authentic journey. Enjoy. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? Doing well in the circumstances. I mean, I feel kind of bad saying that, but doing well. Good. I... I'm so excited to have you on the show. This is Dr. Chelsea Shields, everybody. She is a boss. You have (laughs) 100 master's degrees. You're like probably one of the smartest women I've ever talked to. I love interviewing scientists. Uh, So I'm so excited. I'm going to let you kind of introduce yourself a little bit and tell the people listening what you're all about, and then we'll kind of jump into some questions.
0: Well, you just made my day. So, I am never told considered the smartest woman, so it makes me happy. I'm often underestimated.
1: <laughs> I find that hard to believe, but once people start talking they'll they'll be like that will that can't be. That can't be true. <laughs> Oh, well, I do smart. tend to be, so, like, nice. fun
0: and kind and, like, I, I am stylish, and so when people
1: meet me, they're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you're also very pretty, so that's, people immediately are like, she can't be smart, too, but this is something we'll get into on the podcast because cool. let's do it. Okay. Tell them tell them about you. Okay.
0: So I am a Mormon girl from Tooele, Utah. <laughs> I was raised in, like, a very traditional family, but I never quite fit in, Um but we love each other very much. Um, And from an early age, I just had like this um, real desire to understand how the world works. I felt like everyone's lying to me. I'm like, this is not how the world works. And I kept trying to follow all the rules, but then when you jumped at context, it's new rules. So rules at church are different than rules at home, are different than rules at school, are different than rules on a date. And I am just kind of a little bit of uh, like, think of me as like a Larry David. So my brain is constantly processing information. So from my earliest childhood, I've just been processing patterns of human behavior and been obsessed with human behavior. So I went into anthropology as an undergraduate, of course, which is the study of humans. And I was really interested in culture and religion and how it shapes your mentality and how it shapes your decisions and how we look at that across time and space through humans. And I was able to do some amazing um, fieldwork in West Africa where I worked with traditional indigenous healers with and we've had friendships for over 16 years now with some of them that we've been um, back and forth um, working together for for decades where we really try to understand their religion their culture and their healing practices and understand where they're coming from and along that process we discovered that it's not enough to just understand the cultural side what's happening there's a lot of biology happening and so had to go back and do all my degrees at boston university again in biological anthropology. So that's kind of why it took me so long to graduate, but ended up with a bio and a cultural degree in anthropology. And what I studied was the effects of the placebo effect outside of medical context. So what that means is we've done a lot of research on the placebo effect or how a sugar pill can actually change your body's physiology in biomedical drug trials or in research and testing. Um, we work, I work very closely with people who do those kind of placebo trials, but we don't have a lot of people who understand how that phenomenon, the ability to manipulate someone's physiology with a lie, how does that phenomenon take place outside of the medical world. It's not something that evolved in biomedicine. Biomedicine's new. It's only a couple hundred years old. So how did that placebo effect work outside? How does it work in marketing, advertising, politics, religion, manipulation, relationships, um, those kinds of things. And that's kind of what I've become an expert in. And I take all of that knowledge and in my work as a research strategist. So I work for a lot of companies where they hire me to do a ton of research. And then I tell them, hey, here's what I think you guys need to do. Um, and that's kind of what I spend my days doing.
1: Oh my gosh. So just to correct what I said before, you have two PhDs. Yeah. Oh my gosh. When do you sleep? Okay. So that is fascinating.
0: It took a long time, And I got a lot of shit. And so I want any listeners here. We're talking about being real women. Okay. So took a things- lot of time and I was a single mom and i got had to work and i had to get extensions and i had a lot of people kind of give me crap for taking so long you know and i remember along the way being like so grateful to boston university as like the single mom that they like gave me an extra year and they like worked with me and i was like thank you and like some people got it and other people were just like you can't be a true academic unless you have your phd and you have your books written by your 20s and you're in you know a tenure track position by your 40s and And the academic world has just changed so much that I feel like people who are really doing great things feel like failures all the time and it's not okay.
1: I, I, yeah, I do not believe that at all. I am totally of the mindset that, you know, if you can be 40 and be like, I think I want to be a scientist and go and study. And the coolest thing about your education process is that you did it debt free. Yes. So that was kind of slowed
0: it a little bit, but that was just kind of how I had to hustle. We, I was from a family of eight kids, so we didn't have a lot of money. And so I just spent my whole life kind of hustling through education, finding ways to get it free. So I led study abroad to, I created the study abroad program to West Africa. So that was like kind of what paid for my trips to West Africa and my tuition at BYU. And then when I went to graduate school, I worked as an RA and I lived in the housing, got all these scholarships.
1: So I was just able to kind of hustle my way through grad school okay, all the girls listening, if you think you can't, just re-listen to this story, right? Well, and some of it's about being smart. So one of the research I
0: found is that you don't get master's degrees paid for but I only had a bachelor's. So I was like, wait, how do I get a P- PhDs? You can find scholarships, you can get those paid for. There's a lot of programs where if you have good grades and you have some experience, you can get your PhD pr- paid for but not your master's. So I did a ton of research and found a loophole, which is to get apply, apply to a master's PhD program that has scholarships, because then you'll retroactively get your master's paid for.
1: Earlier this week, I was listening to these two guys talking on uh, Instagram Live, and somehow it it turned into talking about how, which I'm just going to bring this up because it's it's very it's going to be in our in our conversations a lot over the next hopefully forever until it's fixed. But there's there was a lot of conversations about foreign languages being unable to flourish because of. English, and I love that you've studied this because as I listen to these guys talk, it just it reminded me of when I was in Utah or, or Nevada, and I met we met with this, we were at the Amman, and we met with this uh, Indian chief, and he was talking about how the Native Americans are losing their language because it's a spoken language, and they, they can't teach it to the kids in school. They're not allowed. And so they just don't have time and the language is literally vanishing. And these guys were talking about how, you know, these beautiful sounds in um, Swahili and all these other African languages, you know, they they kind of get lost. and, And people coming to this country, especially people who are forced to come to this country, have kind of lost part of their identity. And it's interesting that you've studied in Africa, and you've studied language, and you've studied human behavior. You know, what are your comments on linguistic genocide? Oh, that's a great question. I actually
0: experienced that firsthand in West Africa, It's um, where the local language we spoke was chi. Um, but because it 's a colonial country, so this, this dates back way earlier than what we 're experiencing This is right. colonialism before, and what we saw is if you were under fifty years old what, where I lived, that you only spoke chi you didn 't ever have a formal English education. You know so the, the older people could only speak. Qi. But then with the formal English education, a lot of the younger people got that English education. So they spoke Chi at home and they spoke English at school. But what we began to find is, and not just me, what, you know, what we're seeing cross patternally, is that now we're teaching this whole generation in this worldwide language, which really helps them for you know college, careers, sets them up to really be, be able, especially with the digital world, to expand further than even their parents could have expanded, right? And yet, we are handicapping them because now those words, those complicated vocabulary that they would use in qi to learn how to write poetry, books, movies, art from their perspective, they're learning all those words and that vocabulary in English. So the books that they're writing, are they saying those vocab in qi or English? And that really shapes like your identity. And so this has like been an issue for, for all of life, this idea of how do we retain the the Unique parts of our culture while participating in the larger global economy um, and setting our families up for success. So, I don't know if I'm helping or complicating, but it's a huge, huge problem out there. And, you know, it, it, one of the reasons why it's so bad from an anthropology perspective is we believe um, that the way you speak and the words you use and the culture you're from actually shapes your worldview. So there's this really cool study of the Hopi Indians really um, a long time ago, and it was called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Some of you who have done linguistics know it, but it's a cool hypothesis. And basically they discovered that the Hopi Indians don't have a past or a future. Everything's kind of in the present tense. And so the argument was, do Hopi see the world the way we see the world with a past present and future if you don't even have past or future in your word vocabulary Mm. and it's more of a cyclical time period and regeneration and so it started this is years you know hundreds of years ago but it definitely started this mentality that the words we speak and the cultures we come from shape who we are and if we lose those we're losing pieces of our identity and how we see the world so that's one side The second argument is we're just becoming more of a global people and we're seeing that from year and year and year from, you know, social media to internet, it's exponentially happening where we're all sharing the same culture. When I was growing up, I did not have the same celebrity friends as my African friends, as my European friends, as my Australian friends, as my Mm -hmm. Japanese friends. And today we're talking about the same movies, the same, you know, we're watching the same things on Netflix, we're using the same platforms, we're using the same apps. So we are losing some of that indigenous knowledge and there's a huge consequence, but the alternative is that we're all trying to become one global culture. And I think that's why we're seeing so much pain right now is we're all trying to be one
1: culture and that's the first time that's ever happened on a planet. Wow. Well, okay. So many comments. So yeah, when I lived in Indonesia, they don't speak past or future. So they'll be like, I'm at the store, the way that the language would work as I was trying to learn it, they would say, you know, I'm at the store two days ago. So it's, it's very simple language in the sense that you don't have past or future tense, but it's also very complicated because, and you notice that the the people are just, they're different, you know, but it's beautiful and it's, it's sad. And, it's sad to lose culture in a way because I'm not sure that the trade-off is, is better. You know, <laughs> like I love, when it's I lived really in San Francisco. Francisco, say that again, say that again. Did you, did you, did I break up? No, it's
0: just such a good point. And oh. I think we need to
1: <laughs> end with that. It's such a good point. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I'm just not sure that the trade-off is worth it to lose culture for the global, you know, macro level culture. Right think
0: of how much art, and that's what kills me, is how many of those Chi artists, poets, playwrights, you know, fashion designers, could we have had in the Chi language had they ever been taught that at that higher level of linguistic, right? We lost all those artists. So that part, like, is just so sad to me.
1: Um, But, you know, it's not new. (laughs) It reminds me of San Francisco in a way because, when I lived in San Francisco in 2002 to 2006, 2001, 2002 to like 2006, 2007, it was so awesome because, and don't take this wrong, When I'm gonna say it this way, but it's on purpose. It was such a segregated city in the sense that all the cultures were very much pur- on purpose, segregated. So you would basically preserve the culture. So you had, you know, all Chinese in Chinatown and you can get the best Chinese food and really classic Chinese art and fashion. And then you go to South of Market and it's all Latin and it's it's um and and it's it's just really preserves the culture. You get the best food, you know, you go to Little Italy, it's all Italians. You go to um all you know go you go to Marina, it's all white people. It's like, you know, not it's like decent food. You know, <laughs> like but it just preserves the culture. You go to so- Soma. It was like all hipsters you know and like a little European you go you know and it preserves the culture and and when I go back to San Francisco now I cry almost every single time because it's just so like whitewashed and it's so gentrified in a way where it just doesn't preserve this special art fashion food world that that kind of feels like you're in another country you know you're walking down these streets and you're like this is crazy. Like this hate Ashbury is all hippies. This is so crazy, you know? So it's, I don't know.
0: I just in other cities, I've seen that not as bad in New York, but I've seen that in like a Harvard Square. So, Boston, I went to BU Mm. and Harvard Square used to be really interesting. It used to be fun. We used to take people down there. Now it's a bunch of banks, it's literally (laughs) like a bunch of banks. And I'm seeing this across cities where we are losing
1: these like cultural centers, and it is so heartbreaking. Yeah, I guess like what is the answer? Like, where, I guess, is it, is there a way to, to, relocate if they have to move, but yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's okay. The other thing, just because I feel like I could like ponder about that forever because it is, it is a little heartbreaking, but at the same time, it's like, do we do need to connect as a, as a planet to kind of make things work. Although we have so many borders still that I just don't know. I think we need more compassion, nurturing, understanding in our leadership in every country uh, and more you know more women in roles of leadership to understand that like it's not worth losing the culture just to you know operate let's just say more efficiently <laughs> that said
0: here's a positive point so if i were with my undergrads i'd make them write a paper on this but i'd be like the positive side is here's now this technology the internet apps development zoom where a young kid from west africa could could theoretically come up with the next cool hit movie, poem, book, in this global culture where he would have access to a world he would never have if he only spoke chi. Right. there's like this whole other positive women side women. too. Yeah, there's this whole other positive side too, where we're seeing these artists of diversity really making it in this global culture. And and again, it's not as good as it could be, but compared to the content I was watching 10 years ago, I am watching content by women, for women. Mm. I am watching women of color leads. Like these are things even eight, 10 years ago, I wasn't seeing. So there is this positive side, which is, as we all speak a global language, which I hate that it's hegemonic and white and European, and I'm so sorry that that's like what the language has become, but the benefit is we are able to hear voices that we
1: could have never heard if we all spoke different languages. Right, and communicate with each other, which is, which is so important. So, you know, let's talk about like healers, because you lived with a bunch of these healers and fetish priests and indigenous priests in when you were in Africa. And one of the things I noticed when I was like, uh, hearing about the Native Americans losing their language is that they're losing a lot of uh, connection to nature and a lot of ways that they heal that really could be effective on, on, you know, the Western world. But it's like they're, these ideas are just disappearing. So, what did you learn from, from them, I guess, on top of everything else?
0: Oh my gosh, so much. Um, you know, I'll say one critical thing and then I'll just say the positive because we don't need a lot of critical. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say one quick. Crit- so I know, I'm a positive person. So, one critical Wait, thing. Well, thing I is am. Hopeful. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Yeah, we are seeing companies we have for a long time that have gone in and found the like special ingredient and then make this multi-billion dollar company in the U.S. And like the people who have been using that ingredient for how many years are not benefiting from that ingredient. So that is definitely something that is an issue. That said... Um, what I learned from these healers are, let me give you just two like amazing things I learned. So the first one I learned is this thing called the pain overlap theory. So it came out in 2013 with the Eisenbergs, Eisenbergers, and they're a couple of, um, and Matthew Lieberman, they're a husband-wife team from San Francisco who really studied social neuroscience. So how our brain is social. We know that our brains grew because of sociality. We know that only big brained animals The only big-brained animals are those who are social. So we know our sociality has a lot to do with our brain and a lot to do with the way we process things. And they came up with this brilliant discovery in 2013 where we cannot feel physical pain and social pain at the same time. They discovered that we use the exact same neural pathways. So the reason why that's important to everyone listening on the call is they were the first people to really discover why teenagers self-harm during times of great emotional or social pain. And it's because you cannot feel those kinds of pain if you're cutting yourself or if you're binging or purging, or if you are getting a tattoo, or if you are exercising to extraordinary lengths, or if you are anorexic, or if you are addicted to alcohol, or if you're watching porn, Like all the things we get addicted to are kind of ways for us to not feel such social pain. So they invented this really cool, thing that we discovered, like, oh my gosh, this helps us understand social pain and physical pain in those neural pathways. So the cool thing I discovered in West Africa was I was trying to see if that's the case over there. And I discovered all of these different scenarios, obviously it's not conscious, where the healthcare workers were using social pain to mitigate physical pain. Because where I did my research was way out and you know, no, no fresh water, no showers, no, we were in the middle of nowhere and there's no pain medicine. And so it's kind of this idea, in a world with no pain medicine, how do healers manage pain? And so what we saw is that they began to use social pain. So we saw during a childbirth, I witnessed a childbirth, and it was like a young girl, no pain medicine, obviously, and she kind of screamed out and was slapped across the face and said, no, hey, how do you think babies come into this world? And I was shocked. I was like, oh, this poor woman, I want to hug her. That's very white, you know, privileged way of seeing pain. And stepping back and just kind of watching, watching this young boy who just broke his arm, sit with a bone setter. And the bone setter tries to set his arm and he winces. And seeing the bone setter say, hey, look at this boy, he is weak, he cannot handle it. And then everyone's looking at this boy and he's feeling embarrassed and then he quickly resets the arm. So it's this way, obviously not conscious, but it's this way of using social pain to heal physical. We see it all the time in the US but we don't really categorize it. So think of like a skateboarder on ridiculousness who falls. Terrible fall, probably broke his butt. But then he gets up and he's like, oh, and he laughs and he walks off. We see this all the time. It's because when we're feeling social pain, that is more important than our physical pain. And we can kind of handle it so that we don't look like weaklings. But anytime that social pain goes away, that's when the pain really hits. So if you ask someone, oh, I could handle the pain when my friends are around, but what did you do when your mom showed up? Or what did you do when you got to the hospital? Everyone will tell you the pain became intense. So that's kind of what I discovered over in the field is that a lot of West African behavioral practices are actually social ways to manage physical pain.
1: Oh, oh my gosh. You just reminded me of something else that you told me about. That is amazing. One comment on that. And then I want to ask you one more thing. Um, Maybe that's why when we're depressed, and I say this a lot, like when you're in a dark way, just go and help other people because I found that when I volunteer, if I'm depressed and I volunteer and I try to help other people, it totally goes away. And it's not even a distraction. It actually feel, I physically would feel better when I'm volunteering my time. So maybe there's actually neuroscience behind that. I mean, that's pretty, I mean, you just said there is, that's pretty fascinating. Totally.
0: Well, and even with that, what we find, this is why meditation is so important. And this is a little off off topic of pain, but what we're finding, especially with depression, what you're saying is like being in the present moment. So if we're always in the future moment, anxiety. If we're always in the past, depression. If we're literally living in the future, in the present moment, both anxiety and depression lessen. And so that's why we tell people to meditate. That's why we tell you to get like a tactical hobby, like wood wood carving or or like a craft, like knitting, like anything that keeps you in the present moment focused on what is your current situation you are going to be healthier and happier because we have these overactive imaginations and these overactive immune systems and these overactive stress responses. Cause we were like, basically not that long ago when our bodies developed on the Pleistocene, you know, running away from predators. So mm-hmm. we are not built for this world, if I'm being honest, and, yeah. and we, we are going to make it worse by thinking ahead and make it worse by thinking in the past. So the more you can train your crazy brain, which has evolved over millions of years to be vigilant about all the past mistakes we've made and all the future mistakes we're going to make, and we're hypervigilant, if we can turn that off a little bit, and it's something that helps us survive, so it's good, the more we can turn that off by just like, this is my current context, I have no fears or threats, there are no predators getting me, I can relax, and I don't have to worry about the future. The more we can do that, for some it's meditation. I'm not that great at yoga meditation, but I do support this idea. So, Mm -hmm. whatever gets you in the present moment, I think the more we can do that, the better off we're going to be.
1: I like that you say, like, woodwork or painting or whatever, anything, cooking, cleaning, like, that is still a form of meditation. You're just letting go of everything that you're thinking about and you're committing yourself to an activity. So, those are forms of meditation, absolutely. Totally, and mindfulness.
0: And I think that's the key. Like, for me, it's cooking. Like, at the end of the day, I want a glass of wine and I want to cook like a really yummy gourmet meal. And like, it takes me till nine a lot of times.
1: But that's my new new relaxation, you know? Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm so the same way. I, sometimes I'll be in the kitchen for four hours. That's, I think, why I like to make homemade pasta because it takes forever. Oh my gosh, I love homemade pasta. I make my own noodles. Oh, see, we're, we're, we're pasta sisters. we same I love that.
0: Okay. Well, next time we, we, so Mel and I, I don't know if you guys know this, have never actually met in person. No, <laughs> so next time we meet in person, let's make homemade pasta and do a long cooking session.
1: Yes. I love that. Maybe we'll do a session and post it for people to, to watch both of us making pasta and they can meditate. I <laughs> um, love it. I like cooking cuz it like gives you a little reward after your meditation. It's like a, you get to actually enjoy it. And actually I feel like food when you meditate, well, like when you when cooking is meditative for you, you can taste it in the food. It totally has a little extra like energy in it. Okay. It's so interesting. My
0: husband will eat like a PB&J and I'm like, "No." Like I would rather be a little bit more hungry and wait till I can make something that like tastes a little better as a reward. You know what? I mean? <laughs>
1: I love that. Okay. So, um, I want to cover this thing so I don't forget it, but it's something that you said, um, about your time in Africa that you learned, which was this concept of family therapy. Can you explain that? Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. Yes. I so love it. Oh, I'm so glad.
0: So one of the biggest differentiators I discovered really early on like, what's the difference between like the medicine or the healthcare practices that are happening, like the behaviors? In, like, a West Africa versus like a biomedical. Like, what are some differences, some high level differences? And one of the biggest differences we found that in America, your health is very much solitary. You go to the doctor alone, you talk about your health problems alone. Often, you only talk about the health consequences of the things that are immediate in your life. You don't really talk about your relationships, your work life, the stress. You know, we're starting to get that way. Biomedicine's learning (laughs) and it's starting to pay a lot more attention to kind of those social determinants of health, but that's only in the last. Um, sociocultural determinants of health became part of the mcat only less than i think eight years ago so we really in medicine have not been focusing on that and that's the opposite in west africa so when we go to a let's say a ritual in west africa the whole family's there and ever and, and they work on like conflict that's going on in the family so even during a healing ceremony that's all about physical they're like well this physical problem can't be solved until we heal the spiritual conflict that's happening. And so they'll take that conflict and they'll actually like do, I wouldn't necessarily call it family therapy because it's like, there's some animal sacrifice. There's some ritual. Like I don't think Americans would see it as family therapy. But what I saw was basically the whole family working to get you healthy and whoever needs to make adjustments does that. And that's not how we approach healthcare in the US.
1: Not at all. And I feel like instead of it's not family therapy it's just understanding that you're the the people around you affect your health and bringing them in to see that a professional is telling you that you're affecting them (laughs) yes that's perfect that's exactly right you know because so many people you know there's this one that one quote that went around it's like um oh it's uh it's not robin williams but there was a robin williams quote that reminds me of it but it's like before you diagnose yourself with depression just make sure you're not surrounded by assholes like that quote i love that oh my god we should talk more about that (laughs) we should because modern social social relationships you said this these are your words modern social relationships harm us and we don't understand that they transmit of energy into our bodies, and they result with physical manifestations and that hurt us. You know, we're hurting because of our hurting relationships.
0: A hundred percent correct. And that's kind of why I kind of wanted to talk earlier about like how important sociality is. That's literally how our brain developed. Like, we don't understand if we had a human nature, it would not be, you know, oh, violence. The way we portray human nature is selfishness and violence. That's not true. If you really study the history of humankind, we are hyper, hyper social. And 90% of us will sacrifice intense happiness for the group. It's only a few outliers that are violent, selfish, egotistical, narcissistic. Most of us, and look at your family, look at your aunts, your uncles, your mom. How many of them were selfish? How many of them were self sacrificing How many of them made decisions for the group over themselves? And I would bet most of us have more self-sacrificing people in our lives than selfish. And what happens is we hear these stories of these terrible people. And so we have, and we have bad experiences. I've been betrayed. I've been betrayed by friends, by lovers. So we have this intense understanding of the world that like people are bad or mean or going to hurt you. But the reality is, yeah, a handful of assholes will do that. But most people won't. And if you spend your life protecting yourself from a handful of asset like assholes at the cost of having true friendship, your health is hurting. Mm -hmm. Everyone needs five to six healthy, unconditional friends, period. Like most humans had over six friends less than 50 years ago. And now most humans have three or four and it's even getting worse. And as you get older, you have less. So, that kind of idea of our social group, our community, it's been overtaken with institutions and we've lost, that, um, we've lost that deep vulnerability that sociality actually needs. So I have a ton of people in my family, but none of them support my bisexuality or none of them support my lifestyle or none of them support. So I can't include them in my closest friendships because they don't give me support. It actually harms me when I see them. So who do I actually have that gives me that safe place? And that's what I want people to start thinking about.
1: Have to surround yourself with people who love you enough to stay close to you, but give you space to grow and accept you for your expressions and and create a safe space to communicate. And you told me something like uh, 90% of communication is nonverbal. And do you think that that's because we developed, our brains developed without language for so long that we actually rely so much on nonverbal communication still to understand each other. Yes.
0: And even more than that, humans are,
1: think of us like, have you guys ever
0: watched X-Men and everyone has a superpower? (laughs) If humans were represented in that, our superpower would be to read other humans without any words. So we have the ability to read over 14,000 facial expressions in under two seconds. We have the ability, there's a great book called um, The Gift of Fear. And it's all about from like a cop or forensic perspective, how most victims actually feel uncomfortable way before they're attacked and that they know, but they're being polite or they're doing social, um, social norms rather than following that fear. So it's all about the gift of fear that humans actually know whether they trust someone or distrust something, someone within seconds. And it's really what we need to start teaching humans is trust those immediate feelings. We've actually gone away from those immediate feelings because we have culture, because we have religion, because we have, and those cultural things are what are preventing us from really trusting our instincts.
1: Yes, oh my gosh. That is so true. When I had this, I had a relationship and the guy, I had two relationships and both guys lied to me for over a year. And, um, First of all, that's terrible. Let's take a moment. Not cool. Sorry. Your primary partner should not be lying to you. Well, um, like one, they they lied about big things, you know, things that, that, that you know, the problem with lying is that when somebody tells you one lie, there's a million more to support it. So lying, you know, but I do think we become desensitized to understanding that we can read that communication, Muji. And I think
0: women especially are told so often, you're crazy. I've been told this my whole life. And I'm like, this pattern does not make sense. And I'm good at pattern recognition. And I still have people tell me, no, you're wrong. You're misinterpreting it wrong. And no, ultimately, I'm right. You're always
1: right. we are always right. Our gut is like our strongest tool. I say, I say this regularly, but my mom got me a book, How to Never Be Lied To Again. And it gives you all these things that people do. You know, they cover their mouth. They look to the left. They do like that. It was literally like a, a tactile like checklist you could do if somebody is doing these things to you they are lying to you if this is how they communicate with you non-verbally they they are lying you know this is if this is a tell all that you know anthropologists can tell when they you know when they use these on people and and i find it fascinating and i I wonder if the media the media and, and the way that our pop culture has developed you know, we're staring at screens, we're scrolling, we have constant, we, you know, we don't even get one or two seconds to look at something. We get like 0.05 seconds to look at something now. Um, and I, I just wonder if like all this selfishness that is glorified and this egotistical and narcissism, I just wonder if it's contagious. You know what, that's a good question. And I don't know the answer. I'm so sorry. No, <laughs> I, I'm you, I just- I'm just wondering because it seems to perpetuate. No, you're right.
0: And what you brought up is this little thought that I had. Can I go on like a two-second feminist rant?
1: Yes, please. Always always make sense for for rants about about human beings being equal.
0: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Thank you. So I think we as women – so I don't know the answer to that question. But I do think something that sparked my thought as you were talking is I think we as women are more vulnerable to this. And it's because we – have been raised in a structural inequality system. It doesn't matter how you, how you phrase it, there's inequality between men and women. And in those systems, men benefit from that structural inequality. So women are have had to learn how to be not direct. We've had to, so for example, Deborah Tannen is one of my favorite um, authors on linguistics. And she talks about this whole thing about how when women want ice cream, they ask their husband, hey, do you want ice cream? They don't say, I want ice cream. (laughs) And if their husband says no, then they're like, okay. But they don't just express what they want. And then she might be pissed at him because he said no. And he's like, wait, you just asked me a question. Like, so there's all these dynamics happening. And I feel like, yes, it's hard on the men. No question. But from that structural inequality, we are way more vulnerable to always second guessing those initial reactions we have. Because... As a woman, I was told my whole life, I'm equal, I feel equal, but my religion told me, no, there was a certain role I had to fulfill. Does that make sense? So those initial sociological, physical, think of yourself as an animal. Humans are animals, we are apes. We are very smart and we are very pretty apes, but we are apes. And I think people forget that, we are animals. And like, we need to pay attention to those immediate responses, because that's our body after millions of years of training teaching us rather than those 30 years of cultural indoctrination we've had, which we've already learned 80% of that cultural indoctrination is false and bullshit. So women just need to start trusting themselves more
1: period. I agree. And I think it takes work. You know, I think you have to actually get quiet and listen to yourself and take notes. You know, like I always, if something happens in my life and I'm questioning it, I write it down. And then later, if it happened, I like put a check mark by it because that's where I know that my gut was right. And I know that that is a feeling I need to try to remember everything that I felt around it so that I can kind of encourage that feeling, you know, I've had multiple situations with people, you know, and I'm a big journal keeper, so where you know i there's just something not right about her, you know well, she was sleeping with my boyfriend you know there's you know there's there's somebody in my you know oh. you know there's different things and you and i I look back and there's all these notes, and it's like if I had just also said my stomach hurt, um I was sweating around her, you know, my body is giving me physical manifestations of my gut telling me not to trust this person, and yet. You know, I'm not listening to it, like you said, because I'm taught that the things that I think in my, in my gut, in my, in my seated self are, are not right, you know? So I do think you can kind of keep track of it, though. When you get those feelings, it's good to write it down. Who are you around? Where are you? You know, like write down the details it, that you can grow your intuition. It is, it is possible. 100%.
0: And you're going to make mistakes. So I had this bad feeling about a job a couple years ago. I just didn't feel good about it, but it made sense financially. It made sense from all the package. Like everything made sense to say yes, mm-hmm. but I just had this bad feeling. And I talked to my husband. We, anyway, we ended up going forward. It was the worst job ever. <laughs> and we both looked at that and said, we're never doing that again. So I'm a terrible journal keeper, but Mel is right. If you have that skill, go for it. For me, I've had to learn the hard way and realized, like for example, in college, if I showed up to a class and the professor was like super anal and like, here's all the rules, I learned really quickly because I took so much school, like this isn't gonna work for me. I'll take another class, like another professor on this random subject who's more chill. And I learned the hard way, like that worked out every time. Every time I stayed with a professor that I thought was lame, it was like a difficult class. Every time I stayed with a professor that was cool, it was an awesome class. So I had to like learn that lesson, same with jobs, is I've had to just learn that lesson by doing it wrong a couple times, that like it does not matter if the facts line up, if I don't feel comfortable, I'm gonna pass on this opportunity.
1: I love that. I mean, I, I think that's so true. You know, you can, everyone, you know, you can say, who's your favorite teacher. They, they say it in three seconds. Like they know, everyone knows who their favorite teachers were in school, in school growing up and in college and in post, you know, post, you know, any, anything you're learning, you can, you can tell if you, if you like the teacher or not. And it's not just cause you learned and you excelled. It's because, because you, you They kept your curiosity. They made you feel comfortable with it. it, I don't think we as human beings can learn if we're uncomfortable like that.
0: Right. And, you know, that's a good point. I think the same thing about safety. So I'm a huge fan of comedy because I've learned scientifically that if you laugh, you can't feel unsafe. So for me, I think that's why everyone tells a joke at the beginning of a speech or why we love comedians presenting information rather than boring academics, or it's why we love our funny friends (laughs) is same kind of what you just said. If you feel uncomfortable, you can't learn. I feel like if you don't feel safe, you can't trust.
1: Wow. I agree. I agree with that completely. I've experienced that personally. How much laughing was there in the cultures in Africa that you lived in? Was there more than what you see here? Oh my gosh! <laughs> Ask anyone who knows a
0: Ghanaian, and they will tell you this is the happiest people you've ever met. Um, hospitality is one of their cultural um, main cultural values. This obligation that if someone's in my home or in my community, like we are going to be hospitable. And so um, there are some really interesting things, and there are some undersides. Like I did discover some terrible undersides of sexual violence and abuse to young girls, and so it's not all good. But that side of humor and happiness and joviality like there is so much
1: happiness in cultures where you we assume there is not right because we associate financial wellness with um personal
0: value yes and what we find in the science is financial wellness does not equal happiness what equals happiness is the lack of that inequality so in countries where there's really really rich and really really poor we don't see happiness in countries where it's just poor We actually see pretty high happiness rates. So what we're seeing with this advent of, you know, when I first lived in Africa, no one had computers. Not one person had a computer in their home. I mean, a lot of times there weren't even electricity all the time. And now everyone has a cell phone. So what we're seeing in happiness levels now versus 10 years ago are different because all of a sudden these people who may or may not have been happy in their villages are now have access to all the culture in the world and realize that their house is not as good as someone else's house and they are not making enough money and they are not. So with this internet, there's two good things, lots of good things, equality, democracy, access to information but it also creates one worldwide culture where there are rich and poor and that decreases people's happiness.
1: That's so interesting. Yeah. Did you feel the way people teach there was different also, like in the the main, you know, the main tribes that you lived in? like? And I'm also curious about femininity because I find that it seems to me when we're in these really... my the my favorite thing you said to me when we talked before was when you said yes i'm just unapologetically ambitious <laughs> and i'm like i love that you know and and i feel the same way and i'm never going to apologize for wanting to aspire to better versions of myself um but i do think we have to kind of pay attention to emulating men when we're kind of trying to step into positions of authority because i do think it's important that as women become Higher up in every single industry, you know, and in developing and and you know these these countries that that we lead in a way that is a feminine. I
0: agree.
1: Yeah, and I just I'm curious what it, do you how did how did you study did you study either of those concepts? So let me put that question and then I'll kind of talk about femininity in South Africa because yeah. it is interesting. I have some questions.
0: So I actually have not owned that word ambitious until like, I'm almost 40. Well, I'm 38, but like, I have not owned that word till my late thirties. And I've been ambitious my whole life. And it's because like women in my culture who like wanted careers and wanted ambition, it was kind of looked down on. And like, I was, and it wasn't a good thing. So I've been hiding that for years. And so now I'm like, you know. It (laughs) I'm I I want to be the best anthropologist in the world. Like, I don't care. I might not become that, but that's gonna be my goal. And you know, I I I love owning that because I think it opens the door for younger girls. That's kind of why I'm trying to be bolder than I naturally am. Is I talk to women our age and like especially women who have left patriarchal religions or cultures or families or relationships, and their number one piece of advice is I just wish I would have known earlier. And how do we get these younger women out faster? And so that's kind of what I want. Whoever younger is listening is our biggest advice. If you could like learn from us is trust yourself sooner. Like do what you want, be selfish, be ambitious. Doesn't mean you don't have to be kind. And so that's kind of how I lead with my femininity is I'm very, very, very kind. So mm-hmm. even in like workshops, when I have to say something harsh, like, Hey, the money needs to be here by you know Friday, or we're going to see a timeline problem. Like I'm very kind about it. And I think that empathetic and compassionate and understanding in a way that I don't think a lot of male leaders are. So I'm still portraying that femininity, but I still feel like I never waver on like the hard points. So I can be firm if I can be kind. Right. You're assertive, but you're not, you know, And I think early women in the workforce were doing that whole assertiveness without that kindness. And we just got portrayed as these bitches, which no offense to them. They should have been bitches. They're bitch males. Why can't we have bitch females? You know, so, you know, I'm fine with the way that we've been portrayed, but I definitely think that there's a humanness to women who that a lot of times is missing in a work environment where you're seen as a worker, not a human. And all of us are multi. Most women have multiple skills. Most women have multiple career paths. Most women have multiple areas of expertise. Like we're very, um, we've been trained our whole lives to hustle and flow and like move and be quick and like handle being mothers and also workers and also teachers and also this. And I feel like bringing that to our leadership positions and seeing our people as whole humans is a way that we also can be different leaders than men while still not sacrificing assertiveness uh, financial reward, um, power, prestige, et cetera.
1: Oh my gosh. Uh, every time that we, we, you say something, I'm like, I have three more questions. Uh, one thing I do wanna comment also to the younger viewers just to piggyback that is something that I read, which um, maybe you can comment on as well, is that women tend, females tend to lose interest in math and science at the age of 15 if they don't have a parent who's in math or science fields. And I think, you know, my dad was an engineer. He left when I was 14, 15. And I'm always wondering, like, would I have pursued science or something math related, you know, had my dad been around? And the reason I think that is because I'm so inventive. I love numbers and I love science. And people don't realize how many things women, if we had more female scientists and and just any female who is pursuing these intellectual, pursuits that in fields that are very dominated by men i just think the things that would be being invented would be so much stronger so i urge young women who don't have parents that are in math or science fields to stick with it a little longer like stick with it through high school and college and and do explore that because there are a lot of jobs in those fields there's a lot of security you know there's not a lot of they're not they're not At 50% with females in scientific fields at all. So actually, you will be, you know, standing out a little bit, which I think can be a good thing. Um, But I'd love to do a conversation where we just talk about women and the inventions that they've had to contribute, like Hedy Lamar with Bluetooth, like these kind of things. You're just like, wow, we need more females to do math and science roles.
0: Totally, and not only that, we need to um, play up psychology and social science. What bothers me as a scientist is, the hard scientists are considered real, and the soft scientists are considered kind of fake. And yet, there's more important stuff happening in social science right now than in freaking theoretical mathematician, you know, mathematics. And there's more stuff that could help our society coming out of social psychology than there is out of physics, right in this moment. And yet, and that is where women Traditionally, um, really own those fields, and yes, guess what? We don't have a Neil deGrasse Tyson that's a social scientist. We don't have a Bill Nye the Science Guy who's a psychologist. Like, who are our female leaders in these science, the, these sciences that are traditionally female-led, and why are they not leaders in the
1: world? Right. I'm I'm curious. Were women ever, besides Cleopatra, like you've studied, you know, human evolution and and so much of our past, you know, were there civilizations that, that where women were like the the main leaders? Am I miss, you know, I, I'm trying to go through my like 10th grade science class in my head right now um, and understanding sociology and, and human behavior, but were so- women were women ever like running civilizations in our history? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um,
0: From like a societal perspective, no. And I'll kind of explain that. Although we do have things like matrilineal societies. So one of the things I love about working in Ghana is that the people are matrilineal, which means that women, all lineage goes through women, not men. And so that gives them another power. If you're, you know, it gives them, patrilineal means it goes through the dad. So you have the dad's surname, right? The reason why it gives them power is there's compounds in West Africa where it's all women and sisters and aunts and cousins and the men come and go. But the women basically run their lives because it doesn't matter who impregnated them it's the mother who's gonna take care of the kid. And so men kind of come and go and women like run the show in matrilineal societies. And that's pretty cool to watch live in a modern day society. Um, In the past, we had things like that, like some matrilineal, some matro. We had some female empowerment here and there. Um, In hunter-gatherer societies, the most empowerment we saw was with certain hunter-gatherer societies couldn't have large groups of women if they got pregnant, they'd have to leave them aside. They couldn't keep up with the group. So nomadic tribes actually had where we had one woman, multiple male, and that's really rare in human societies, that polyandry. So we have seen some of that, but not to the degree where we owned lineage, we owned power, we owned society. Like There has been some wonderful, especially South American literature written about this like female utopia, but we haven't seen that in the history. Although we have seen that with other species, like the spotted hyena is a dominant female Um, society and it's all run by women. And like bonobos, they're our closest living um, chimpanzee relative and bonobos are female um, driven as well. And so those studies between chimps and bonobos are really interesting to see how like chimps work, male society, bonobos work, female society.
1: So it's really fascinating to see that stuff. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I would just like for like 50 years for women to just take all the leadership roles and just see how different the world would be like that would be such a great social experiment <laughs> can i tell you something about that that so one
0: of my articles in grad school that just like broke my heart <laughs> it was a richard wrangham article he's a professor at harvard and it, the article is all about game theory and what he did is he took college students around the you know around the us and pitted men against women and it was this game, and the game was your nations and you're at war. So, how much war? How much cost of life? How much cost of damage to the country? Like, you're at war, it's this game scenario. What happens? Let's see how the genders do. And it literally broke my heart because when women were against women, they had the lo- lowest cost of life, lowest cost um, to finances, the happiest resolution, the most amount of negotiation and conflict resolution. When you had men against men, you had Highest cost of lives, highest damage, worse outcomes for both parties, worse negotiation. So obviously in that scenario, we're like, women are better. But every time you had a man against a woman, almost every single time the men won because they were willing to sacrifice more lives. They were willing to hurt their cause more. They were willing to do more damage than the women were willing to do just to win. And that's what made me sick is there is these two models of conflict resolution on the planet. One is very conflict-centered, one is very negotiation-centered. And what we've seen on this earth is 90% of all conflict resolution is handled by men. And that is kind of what we're seeing, is it's better for me to win and I don't care who gets in trouble. That's what we've seen in world wars. They don't care that our children are used as cannon fodder for some few people's wars. Whereas a woman would not make those decisions, Or, or, or from a bell curve perspective, we're not talking outliers. And yet, when we see women as the future leaders, we don't see that as an advantage. We don't see that as we should have, Hillary. We see that as a negative, that this well, an odd game, that the men will always win because they're willing to do worse.
1: But it's just like, why can't every single country have a female chancellor? You know, like Germany's doing pretty good with theirs, you know? Like, I just, I just think wherever there's a male leader, there should be a female leader, you know being a voice of reason, like this, we don't want to like sacrifice human life, animal life, plant life, you know, for anything. Those are, those should be our ideals, you know, like we need to preserve people in the planet above all else, you know, not just win, 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 win. <laughs> well, let me ask this, Mel. This is a question I'm going to ask
0: you. Yeah. And this is hard for me because I don't know the answer. Which is in when you're in competition with the man, man, they, you know, su- supposedly this is all theoretical. They never. The they're willing to go, and I have been in relationships like this, so they're willing to go so much further than I'm willing to go that I often just am willing to sacrifice or compromise because I'm like I'm not willing to fight that hard. I'm not willing to be ruthless. I'm not willing to scorch the earth. So am I? They what does that mean yeah. for us? What does that mean for us as businesswomen? What does that mean for
1: us? And what is your thought on that? Sorry, I totally interrupted with a rude comment. So when oh, it's I my, loved your comment. when it's my personal relationship they never fight back because they know what they'll be missing if they do. Um, when it comes to me against men in professional roles, uh, societally, I think for me it's always a matter of coming to a debate prepared. So if somebody is arguing with me and they just, you know, go, 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 I can almost guarantee you that the next time I see that person and have a conversation with them, they're going to have those same bullet points because that's their belief system and it doesn't change. For me, I'm, first of all, I'm open conversationally. I'm open to my opinions, beliefs, all these things, I'm open to all of them changing. So that is one advantage that I have to a lot of the more masculine you know, drivers that I argue with is that I'm willing to be wrong. I think the second thing is that I, I will back out of a debate um, the first time and I'll come a lot better prepared the second time. And this I see works very well professionally because generally the people that you come up against are sticking to one story you haven't given them your belief system or your points or or your the things that you're wanting yet so you can take time and articulate to them why your points you know need to be respected and how they kind of work with their their beliefs and i think when you do that And you can do it in a calm way because I'm somebody who is hot blooded. So I can't engage in conversations right away. Now, if I have one minute with this person and I'm never going to see them again, I probably don't actually even care. But if I am going to try to win my point, I'll try to listen to what they're saying, actually hear it. I'll ask another question that I actually have no interest in hearing the, the, you know, the answer to and I'll take that answer to take the time to formulate my retort and then I will give them something very witty, something that hits one major point that will make them think about it for a long time. So I think I'm more of a strategic fighter and I I I know when I've lost, I'm willing to lose. I'm also willing to learn and I and I and I'm a question asker. So I think when it comes to fighting with with anybody, I think for a long time I did go at it. I know everything too, you know, I'm gonna, like I came from it also from a very masculinized place. But I think as I get older, I just wanna, I don't necessarily wanna be right, but I wanna be effective with my communication. And that for me is, is something that I'm just learning as I get older to just nothing, like I know that we're, we're passionate about the things that are happening, especially societally, but nothing happens if we just yell in each other's faces. And this is something else that I read that was really interesting. It was actually um, this commencement speech from the CEO of LinkedIn to uh, Warren. And he said, he, it was all fascinating because he was talking about compassion and how important it is and how there's the difference between empathy and compassion, which I always thought empathy was more important. But actually the, the thing about compassion is that empathy, you just feel what the other person's feeling. So if you're he says this is these are his words. If you're walking by someone with a rock on them and you feel empathy for them, you feel like you're getting crushed by a rock. If you have compassion, it's it's basically empathy plus action. So you can feel you can feel what they're feeling, and then you can actually apply an action to alleviate the suffering. And and what he says is we have to. St- one of the things that's damaging our culture is tribalism because we basically only listen to people with our belief systems with our political sides you know our families and unless you're the person in your family who's willing to say don't talk about people like that don't treat the planet like that you know d- you know whatever that you're willing to do which is there's usually one of us in per family but the tribalism as much as it like we were saying before it preserves culture i do find it interesting because he was saying It doesn't affect change, you know, and so if we want to actually change other people, we have to be willing to have calm, patient, safe conversations with people who have different beliefs or opinions than us. And that's one of the things I I suffer with, with our political, you know, system here is that no one listens to each other, you know, even our new our news channels, they're separated. Our belief systems are separated. No one's listening to each other. No one's having conversations. It just always results with people screaming and fighting and yelling at each other and nothing ever happens.
0: I think part of it is we are, it's kind of like growing pains. I think we're trying to grow into this global culture and teach each other how to treat each other. At least that's what I'm seeing on social media. And I have for years, which is we're basically like, fighting our way to telling people how you should be treating others. That's what all of these arguments online right now of like, against the all lives matter. It's just education. It's just saying in your little bubble that you've been in, you're wrong. And let's kind of get you ramped up. Let's get you educated. So for me, a lot of these like instances of pain and conflict, like they are painful. I've been there, you know, however, to me, it's all good. It is all getting us closer to where we're trying to get, which is like this more compassionate understanding of the world. You know, we are becoming that feminine model, which is looking at everything, being equal. You know, 10, 20 years ago, when I first started fighting for feminism in the Mormon church, like I could not get non-religious people, women, on board. They're like, I'm fine. My life's fine. You know, then Trump comes along. Then this comes along. Then me too. Then, and which I'm so happy about. So I actually think we've come just enormous headways in that pendulum swing in 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 4 years. And I think what we're sensing is just all the growing pains that come from changing our country.
1: I agree, but I I one thing I will say is I just want to see more women stepping into leadership roles instead of and this is like my whole life ethos at this point, you know, is to let young women know that these like more vain professions and you know i was a model for 15 years in a fashion i was in the fashion industry and i don't feel like i i feel like it got me to where i needed to go but it would be interesting to see you know what i could have done and so i want young women who even if they don't think that they're super 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 smart that they can find something that they can be contributing through and and understand that you know everyone plays a different role but but we do, need, we do need compassionate people like at the top because that, I, like you're saying, like, that's what's gonna get us through the growing pains is when somebody can stand up there at the top and articulate in a way that everyone can understand them. You know Because we try, we do try, it still goes over deaf ears. But I also think there's an anger and a hatred that just people don't listen through anger. And that's one of the things that, like you said, like maybe every time we have a political like, like debate, we should have a comedian do 20 minutes at the beginning. So everyone's just like,
0: (laughs) totally. Well, and you're saying so many important things. And I think that that's one of my fears. And I don't know the solution to this one, which is who is my daughter looking up to? And if we look at Instagram, we look at social media. Yes. Women are making more money than we've ever made. We have more jobs for like the single mom from home that she's ever had. I mean, I am so proud of the Kardashians in a way that most women aren't. I think they've totally changed the way we market. I think they've completely created an influencer marketing. If you're in the marketing world and studying it in any way, what's happening with women making their own money on social media is out of control. We have never seen this in like commerce and with women in our lives. Mm. That said, I feel like you, why are they all in bikinis? Why are they all selling products. Like why can't one of them be an archeologist or where's my NASA astronaut that
1: has a million followers or where's my, you know, and start trying to be a lawyer, which I think what she was trying to do with the prison systems is incredible because they honestly, the prison systems need reform desperately in this country. We're not rehabilitating anybody. We're just teaching people how to be criminals and enslaving people through that system. So I do give her props for, you know, Doing that. Did she actually become a lawyer? I can't, I don't know. I think she's still
0: trying to be, but I'm excited. And if Kim, I want to support someone like her. Like I want her to be a kick-ass lawyer and like I'm gonna give her work, you know? So, but I don't want everyone to do that model. I don't want her to be the model of female success because what we're already learning is women spend four times, and this was in 2010, so probably more, four times as much on their beauty as they do on their education. And that's the message I wanna get across is I I don't care if you're a model. I don't care if you are a belfie queen. I don't care if you're a stripper. Be parallel track investing in something that grows over time, not diminishes over time. And you get this as a financial person. Beauty, no matter what, will diminish. So I'm afraid of all these women who are putting all their eggs in this one basket of their body and their beauty and they're making a lot of money, which is great.
1: But what happens when you're not beautiful? But that's the thing is like, beautiful is, is that Kardashian beauty, that like six pounds of makeup and the, the, you know, the filler and the Botox and the boobs and the butt. And like, that is so surface, like beautiful is somebody who you can, you can tell somebody who's beautiful. Someone who, who is, they can be 30, they can be 60, they can be 20, you know, it doesn't matter what their age is. They're not putting toxic chemicals on their face and in their body and having negative you know things come out of their mouth because that's just not beautiful i think like our whole idea about beauty is different and actually this other girl that um i love her her name's chris she has something called quest for beauty and she basically she was also a model she ended up getting really frustrated with the job and she ended up just taking a camera and going on the road she lived in like 12 countries and maybe more than that, in like in like a year. And she, she went and she interviewed all these different cultures about what their idea of beauty is. And by the end of it, she discovered, you know, that it's, it's internal. It, it's not what you look like, you know? And, and yes, it's good to take care of your skin, but you know, I wear less makeup than ever and I, I'm 37 and I look better than I ever have before. And it's because I work out every day and I eat healthy food. You know, it has nothing to do with how much makeup I'm wearing. And right. I, the toxic. unless This is like the last thing, which is a rant. But the chemicals you're putting on your face. Just go online and look up the chemicals on the back of your makeup. I mean, they're antifreeze. They're chemicals that are proven to cause cancer in scientific studies. They're toxic. You know, stop using that. You know, we. They're going to keep selling it and, until we stop buying it. So I think and I do think millennials are good about this where they're demanding transparency, cleaner products, you know, anti-aging in a, in a natural way. But I think just, you know, b- being more natural is something I wish that we could see more in social media. And one of my girlfriends last year posted a picture, maybe it was earlier this year. And she said, you know, it took everything for me not to to post to Photoshop this, but I'm trying to prove a point because I want my daughter to see what I really look like when she looks back at my pictures, you know, I don't want her to think that she has to look like this thing. And it was, and she's like, and I, I urge, you know, 10 of you or, you know, to to try to post a picture without editing it because we're all editing our pictures and it's, and it's provoking this, this thing. Whereas if we all just are like, no, this is what I am. And I get it if you're making money off of your Instagram, but for the rest of us, it's like, I don't know, do we have to be so Photoshopped? Can't we just be who we are?
0: Totally. And I think that's my question that keeps me up at night is I want my daughter to have you as her like person she's looking up to, but in the world of on-demand content, uh, do, is it our job to make ourselves likable enough to get those, those followers, which I have no interest in, even though I love what I do, or is it the younger generation's job to become who we want them to become and become those influencers with more substance. Whose job is it? <laughs> well, like, so I want women like myself on social media, but I don't want to be on there. It's terrible. I'm not, I'm not thick enough skin. So I don't know the solution. I think I'm looking to others of, do we, do we see these tools and use them as like, this is our way to like get these young girls excited about more of substantive things but by so doing we need to participate in these systems that we maybe don't love or support.
1: Right. It's like almost, we need, we need a new, we need a new thing. You know, it's time to have like a new platform where it's like, it's not LinkedIn. It's not Instagram. It's like somewhere in the middle, you know? And it's, it's just, um, I don't know, just, that's the problem It's you can't like censor, but I, I think it's also the responsibility of the people that are developing these apps to understand the way that humans evolve is going to be affected by this and and the, the, the mentality of people because everyone kind of looks up to this technology in, in developing nations and, and now they're emulating it and, and it's just we need to set a better example.
0: I totally agree. And, you know, if any of our, if any of your listeners have good ideas, I'm open. And I think we do have people doing a great job. I think Brene Brown's doing a great job. I think yeah. Glennon Doyle's doing a great job. I think Elizabeth, you know, um, Gilbert is doing a good job. I do think we have women out there speaking truth and, like, on social media while being substantive. And I do think we're heading that way, way in a way we didn't have 10 years ago.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I agree with that. Okay, so... I'm I'm going to slowly wrap us up because we've been talking for a while and I'm not sure that I'll be able to get all this in. I mean, it'll, maybe it'll just be an extra special long podcast, but I wanted to ask you, you know, well, you just said who some of the people that you think are affecting change, but um, do you have like a couple book recommendations or, you know, women, even more people than you already said that, you know, you would have a younger listener kind of go and check out front besides you of course everybody listening should go and check you out 100 percent. but like just like the top influencers of what kind of got you to think outside of your family's box and have the courage to kind of pursue something that you were curious about that didn't necessarily align with your belief system that you were trained to have oh that's such a great question
0: um obviously all of the 70s icons <laughs> I read a lot of Angela Davis and like Gloria Steinem and have a job before marriage and you know sorry have sex before marriage and a job after you know that kind of advice that I always love Um, right now I'm reading untamed by Glennon Doyle and I think she does a good job kind of showing the ways that our socio-cultural structures tame um, human especially women and force us not to trust our own selves so I think that's a really good one right now um, I um, love the book Social by Matthew Lieberman. It's all about that social neuroscience and like how that our bodies have evolved to be social, like even in our downtime or when we're daydreaming, your brain goes into this process of default where it's using really little energy. But what it's doing is it's, it's creating mental scenarios that are social. That's what we do when we daydream. We practice being social. And it's just this book that talks about how important your social life is. So I think that's one that I would totally
1: recommend. Awesome. Okay. Where can people find you? I'm going to put all your links in the information on the, on the podcast, but if you want to drop some handles or your website or your books, let them have it. Awesome. So really right now, it's
0: com. So just go to com. That's where my website is. And what I am working on right now is a book about social media. So I've been off social media for two years after like having a big following and I'm writing a book right now on that. So that will be coming out probably in the next year, all about kind of how social media disrupts, um, how our bodies have evolved to be social and like how we respond and how we effectively use social media. And so then I'm going to get back on social media. So in about six months to a year, I'll start my social media
1: and I will let you know that handle as well. Awesome. Wow. That is, I can't wait to read that. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. I, I love talking to you. I know we're going to have so many more conversations and i love talking to you so i'm you you do something invite me i'll be there yes awesome well have a beautiful day i know we're gonna talk later but have an amazing day and thank you again for your time and thank you for doing something that's so fascinating and being a woman that young women and men should be looking up to awesome thank you that means a lot Mm -hmm. you too How about we be like each other's,
0: like, I'll have my daughter look to you because no one likes their own mom that much. No, just kidding. (laughs) And like, we all become each other's like, um, feminist icons and and we we grow it
1: that way. (laughs) I'm doing with the goddess circles and that's what I'm doing with this podcast. And, and, you know, if, and when I ever have kids, you know, I will have a great tribe together where we encourage the tribe to go out and talk to other tribes that don't believe in the same things as us. And, not try to convert, but try to understand and learn from each other.
0: I love that. And that's very anthropological. You know, that's one thing you said that I love, that kind of invitational rhetoric and being open-minded and not ethnocentric and understanding that the way you see the world is just one in a million ways of seeing the world. And so that, that anthropological view, that open-mindedness, since the beginning of my career has always come in handy. So if we can give, give one takeaway, I think it's that.
1: Yeah, for me, I got it through so much traveling. But if I would have just listened to something like this and learned and, and practiced that in my daily life, it would have served me a lot sooner. So I agree. Just keep it open and keep it curious. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And you're smarter than you think you are. <laughs> Trust yourself. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Absolutely. We'll talk soon. Thank okay. you, guys. Bye. Nothing in this podcast is a recommendation. Hey all you sea stars, goddesses, naiads, and neptunes, aka the paradisiacs, who care about the important stuff. I hope you all found some inspiration today, and I hope to have your beautiful souls back for our next episode. This podcast supports a beautiful group of humans who gather on full moons, and to find a link for Howl and Heal and for our website with these episodes, details, and blog, head to themelrosehow.com. You can also connect with me on IG at Melrose Wilds or at the Melrose Podcast. Again, this is Melrose. I hope after you listen to this conversation, you feel some magic brewing in your own destiny. Thank you for listening and please subscribe or follow us to get updates on new episodes. And if you love this podcast, the best compliment is to rate us with five stars and maybe leave a little love note about how this podcast might be helping you. Have a wonderful day and may the forces of wholeness and growth be with you all.